Hi everyone, welcome back to the Quantum Heart Cafe. I hope everyone has had a heartfelt uh, weekend and, and week so far and that everyone had a, a happy Easter if, if you celebrate Easter or uh, whatever whatever it is that you enjoy celebrating. I hope that uh, you had a nice time uh, on the weekend and enjoying the, the springtime and the nice weather. And uh, so if if this is your first time at the cafe, this is the Quantum Heart Cafe, and it's a podcast where I share my uh, my interest and, and love of subjects uh, such as metaphysics, coffee, of course, um, spirituality, the occult, and um, you know exploring those subjects through the books I read, as well as relating what I'm reading to. Uh, real-world events like the current affair or yeah I guess maybe like current current affairs or um, but the ones that you don't really hear about on the news or you might hear about them but the you know the usually the story or the message is always like specific for it's tailored for a specific audience or they want to get across a specific message so um, you know it's not always that you know you're not not always going to find the truth on mainstream media, no matter what um, where on the spectrum that so-called media channel falls on. Uh, so that's what this podcast is. If you're kind of new to it, and and it's also a place where I hope to inspire others to read and um, you know and explore their own spirituality and their own connection with. Uh, the creator or source or God or whatever you would like to call that um, that force uh, as well as you know thinking about because um, I really do feel like humanity is at a crossroads right now and it's kind of thinking about you know it's understanding the problem that and trying to figure out you know where do we kind of grow go from here you know in terms of like uh, the rollout of the the Web three and you know the wanting to uh, merge human being well all life with synthetic life and so on and and that kind of thing. So we're kind of you know it is an important time I think in history and um, you know this podcast may be a small voice but I just hope that's a place where I can share um, knowledge and share thoughts and I hope that will. Uh, inspire other people to read and maybe talk among themselves and think about these things too. Um, you know, and that being said, with the coffee, so I'm almost done my my North Star coffee. I got that uh, a couple of weeks ago because I'm an avid coffee drinker, and one of the reasons why I created the um, Quantum Heart Cafe is because, you know, a few years ago when everything was in lockdown, you know, I wasn't really able to go into coffee shops, and coffee shops are some of my favorite places to go. They're like libraries for me, and you know, I could just relax, read a book, enjoy a cup of coffee, and so I kind of decided that, oh well, maybe I can take the coffee on the road or do a a podcast as kind of like a a cafe podcast, you know, a cafe in spirit. So, um, you know, that's kind of where I got the idea for it. And I haven't been enjoying it so far, and just been trying out different. Now I've been trying it because before I was drinking like the store bought coffee, 
Um, not that there's anything wrong with it. And now I'm trying out different, you know, there's a bunch of like local cafes where I live. So I'm just trying out some of the local roasteries. And I've tr- been drinking one called the North Star uh, coffee. It's like a light to medium roast. And it's really nice. It's really good. I had a cup before. I started the sh- before today's show because I try to drink coffee during the show, but I end up, it, it just ends up getting cold. <laughs> so I decided just to have my uh, cup of coffee before, and then we'll see how that goes. So I, I enjoyed that while I was kind of doing preparing and putting together my last little bits of notes and stuff. So that was nice. And I also like to include a moment of gratitude in my show because I just feel like. You know, especially um, with the book I just finished reading, because this is the conclusion for the... uh, Tonight is the conclusion for the book, The World's in Collision. Um, And I was thinking about it, you know, and it's so easy to take life and take the fact that Earth has always been here for granted, and that that could, you know, just based on the content of the book, it can just make... or life can change in like an instant you know it's not maybe not necessarily a gradual change but it could be kind of a a change in the matter of seconds or hours like it's it can be quite fast um so i'm just kind of i am grateful just to be here you know and it's also the book kind of encouraged me to kind of i mean this is he didn't really say this in the book but um just reading it, you know, and reflecting on it for the last couple of days, like, you know, it's maybe just kind of take a few steps back, you know, maybe not be so quick to be impatient with people or be impatient with myself or anything like that. It's just like, what's the rush? You know, just enjoy life. And because, you know, whether it's a um, world ending calamity or Maybe I get smacked by by a car on the way to work or something. Like I won't be here forever, and and if you're listening, you won't be here forever. And it's just you know just part of the natural life cycle. So maybe it's just trying to take a step back and, and appreciate life more, and having more compassion for myself and others, and just you know relax a bit. You know, I mean yeah, we're kind of I know we're it's not easy these days. Um, so I know that sometimes that's easier said than done. Um, but there is something that just to, you know, take a, taking a step back and taking in a couple of breaths and just remembering that, like, there's a huge cosmos out there and so much happens and things can change in an instant. So just being grateful for the moment, just taking a deep breath and just realizing that it's okay, <laughs> you know, whatever thing it is I'll get through it and um, just trying to find the the silver lining or the joy even if it's even if it's difficult times these days Um, so with that being said I am going to be concluding uh, today's or the series the book I'd be reading which I kind of turned into a little bit of a series this is the conclusion for Worlds in Collision I've done I think it's like three or four parts already and um, probably the reason, reason why I did the show a little bit late is just because I just wanted to finish the book and kind of talk about the last half of the Mars, the chapter on Mars, as well as, well as Emmanuel's uh, concluding remarks and give some of my own thoughts as well. 
um, about the book and just kind of my my main takeaway about uh, worlds in collision. And it has been a very eye-opening book. And I um, and uh, as I've said in other um, parts, I you know I ha- <clears throat> I am not covering a hundred percent of the book. Uh, to do that, like this presentation would be quite long. So I've only kind of have like a cliff notes version of it or like highlights about what I thought was interesting and wanted to share. But I highly recommend like any of the books that I read on this show for people to, you know, check out these books because oftentimes like, you know, there's so many, like especially in this book, there's so many uh, quotes from like legends and stories stories uh, shared in the book and just details that you know, I wasn't able to capture because, or I wasn't able to add just because it would make the show really long. Um, so I highly recommend if you have a chance or like ordering the book Worlds in Collision, you know, preferably from a local bookstore, but if you can't, then, you know, there's always the, the Amazon. I, I think this is also, I, I ended up getting it from Amazon, but if you can just uh, support your local bookshops and if they can order you a copy, it's, it's a really good book, really, really worthwhile, and it kind of puts, for me, it's put so much in, into perspective. Um, okay, so we're going to continue with the uh, second half of the uh, chapter on Mars. So Emmanuel continues to uh, kind of draw uh, parallels between a lot of the mythology around Mars and the cosmic upheavals that were happening during the 8th and uh, 7th century. So he begins the second half, or I'm going to begin the second half by talking about the Stormer of Walls. Um, So following the upheavals where Mars um, threw Earth off her hinges, um, mighty earthquakes struck countries all over the world, and they shattered walls. And what's interesting is that in Homer's Iliad, he calls Ares the bloodstained, the bloodstained uh, stormer of walls. So at the time, like during the days of Uziah, Ahaz, Ahaz, or Ahaz, and Hezekiah, uh, I hope I said those names right. I'm so bad with names. But uh, Mars destroyed strongholds, uh, houses, and temples through the earthquakes it set off, and uh, Emmanuel thinks that these prolonged earthquakes happen because the erosion in the crust when the equator changed its positions, as well as the displacement of matter uh, attract, which is created between the two celestial bodies when they became attracted to each other. And when I read that, I kind of thought about how like two magnet magnetic or two magnets being attracted to one another, and that but you know they can't come together so there's like that a lot of energy built up and I I imagine the one of the consequences is a lot of uh, earthquakes and there were a number of earthquakes uh, during the 8th century and there were many like breaches to city walls and temples and these were recorded as well as repaired so it's those recordings of the breachings and the damage to temples that Kind of helped Emmanuel, kind of I just a sense about how men, how much or how many earthquakes were happening at that time. Um, 
And then he Emmanuel also talks about the Steeds of Mars. So back in 1726, uh, Jonathan, Jonathan Swift, who was a scholar and pamphleteer, uh, he wrote that Mars has two satellites. And satellites is just another word for moon if, or for moons, if you're not familiar with that term. Uh, and then Swift also noticed, or Swift also noted that one satellite revolves in the span of 10 hours and the other in 21 hours. So Emmanuel wondered how Swift got that information because back in 1726, they didn't have the optical equipment available just yet to be able to see the moons. So he suspects that uh, Emmanuel read that somewhere, and it, maybe it was in Homer's epic because uh, Homer makes reference to Mars having two steeds, and steeds are another word for horse. And then he also, Emmanuel also in the book reference, references the terrible ones. Um, so when Venus still had a bit of a tail when it came to when it came into contact with Mars. And in the tail, there were meteorites, asteroids, and a bunch of gases, and they, um, and they fell from the tail. Some of the material followed Mars, and then the rest of the material traveled out, and it traveled out into space. So for the people at the time watching this happen, the, um, you know, it must have been terrifying because the debris from the collision between Mars and Earth would have eventually hit, or sorry, not Mars and Earth, Venus and Mars, um, you know, eventually that debris would have uh, hit Earth. And so the new comets that were, well, so what happened with the collision is essentially it did create new comets or just a bunch of debris. So the new debris, uh, it was running very close to Earth. And what's interesting is that Homer in the Iliad uh, recorded that Ares was also accompanied by some terrible beasts called the Terror Route, um, oh sorry, called Terror Route and Discord. Uh, the, okay, so they're called Terror Route and Discord. Uh, so, and then there, the Babylonians saw the Mars that Mars and uh, Nergal, which is the Babylonian name for Mars, was accompanied by demons and wrote hymns to them. Uh, the demons were attributed to being, to also bringing pestilence and earthquakes, because uh, I guess it, all the upheaval um, caused by Venus and Mars also introduced plagues of vermin uh, into Earth, uh, just from all the heat and everything that it created. And then the terrible ones were also, in, uh, they're also attributed to the Furies. And I don't know if you're familiar with Greek mythology, but the Fur, the there's these beings called the Furies. They're usually depicted as, uh, you know, ang uh, women. Um, I can't remember exactly what they were, uh, tasked to do. Like they had a specific role to play. Um, but yeah, they're attributed to them, in Greek mythology as well. Uh, and then the Vedic hymns also reference the terrible ones as well as Isaiah. He called the army of the most high, the terrible ones. Um, so these frightful figures sent meteorites that destroyed cities. So I, I don't know, I thought that was kind of interesting how those meteorites and stuff and all that space debris was attributed to 
um, you know, these sort of nefarious entities. <laughs> um, and then Manuel also talks about how, um, you know, stones, um, how, like, the stones that fell to earth from uh, comets passing too close, they were, um, so at the time, back in the ancient times, the planets were seen as gods and goddesses and the stones were thought to be divine missiles <laughs> so they were they were kind of feared by people but then once they fell to earth they would they were often worshipped by the people um and then in the book Emmanuel gives a couple of interesting examples of stones that fell from space and then became the site of worship for people and um one stone is the i think the cronus Chronos sto uh, stone at Delphi and the sacred stone of Tyre um, they were thought to they were both thought to come from Ashtir herself and then the temple of Solomon uh, was built on top of a, a stone it's called it was called the fire stone and it came from a comet that looked like a man uh, wielding a sword which was seen at the time of David and then uh, another sacred stone that fell is the Kaaba. I think I, I hope I said that right. Located in Mecca, um, and it's still worshipped to this day. And depending on who who's telling the story, the stone either came from Venus or the archangel Gabriel. <clears throat> so Emmanuel wonders what the connection is to the archangel Gabriel, and if there's any connection to the planets and the archangels, and and it turns out there is. So what was interesting is that the destruction of the army of the Sennacherib, uh, who was the Assyrian king, uh, during um, the prophecies that Isaiah was talking about. Um, so he is said to have been, or the destruction is said to have been caused by a blast attributed to the archangel Gabriel in both the Talmud and the Midrashics, uh, sources and then later the blast would be attributed to Mars so Emmanuel then wonders if the archangels are planets and in the old uh, Nautic uh, tradition I hope I said that right um, there were seven archangels and each one was associated with a planet as well as uh, the constellations and they were thought to help keep the universal order so Emmanuel thinks that there is a connection with Gabriel and the founding of Rome. And the what's, in, what's, in, or what's interesting is the name Gabriel is another name for Mars. Uh, so the ancient Jews knew the blast that took out the Assyrian king was from Mars Gabriel. And Gabriel is also the archangel associated with fire and war. Um... There are also some rabbinical sources that also attribute the destruction of the Syrian king's army to the archangel Mikael, or to both archangels. Um, Emmanuel then wonders um, if Venus is associated with the archangel Mikael, um, at least at the time, at that time in history. So. Uh, as it, do, as it turns out, the Exodus is connected with the Archangel Mikael. And, uh, you know, because he was said to appear... Oh, and he also appeared during the time of Joshua. 
and he was said to be made of fire. So I, it looks like the Archangel Michael is more closely associated with Venus, and then the Archangel uh, Gabriel is associated with Mars. And I'm not sure about the other uh, five planets, which Archangels they were associated with at that time. Um, he does talk about uh, sort of a collective amnesia around, uh, or that humanity seems to have about these events, uh, because the generations after the time of the exile, um, and eventually through the, um, or the generate sorry, the generations after the time of the exile, uh, they eventually saw the passages in the or the story about the Exodus as more of a, like a poetic and metaphorical story about the, about these physical events and that they weren't actual, like a, an actual record of, of a, a cosmic upheaval. And they also didn't think a, de a, a flood or fire would happen again. Um, you know, Kemet knew about the catastrophes that befell other countries um, well before pre-Christian 6th century. Um, but, you know, you can't really... It's, but Emmanuel does bring up a good point that, you know, you can't totally blame the generations after these cosmic upheavals for forgetting or for thinking that the stories were more poetic and metaphorical. Uh, because during the catastrophes, a lot of the, you know, the scholarly people, you know, they would have died, so they wouldn't have been able to pass on their stories to the next generation. So, it, you know, like, you know, you can't be too hard on the <laughs> hard on subsequent generations if they don't know what happened because no one's there to pass on the memories. <clears throat> And then Emmanuel also talks about like the folklore, which I thought was interesting. You know, I don't, I never really thought about folklore too much until this book, and just how, you know, maybe within the stories, there's a, if you, you know, other than the magical language, there's like a grains of truth in them. So scholars know that folk tales are not some innocent and imaginary expression of the mind that they contain some inner and more significant meaning and in ancient times the planets played a bigger and more important role among ancient people than they do now because um, as time like uh, as time moved you know modern or as I guess now modern people don't really think about the plant, like they associate most gods and goddesses with the sun and the moon. Like they didn't really think too much about the other planets, um, and so they relate many of the gods and goddesses to the sun and the moon. But what was interesting is that the in ancient times, the sun and moon goddesses they weren't really the most important gods and goddesses in the pantheons, uh, usually the gods and goddesses associated with Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, and Venus, they had more importance than the ones associated with the moon 
and the sun, and it's only like it was only at later later times where that changed. Um, and even in within astrology, like the the big heavy hitters aren't really the sun and the moon, and you know usually the the outer planets have heavy have more sway and a heavier presence in in astrology, like in an, let's say a natal chart. They usually have more you know prominence in a natal chart than the inner planets do. And not that the inner planets don't have um, any sort of importance, they do, but they just, it's, it's like the the bigger planets just have more of a sway. So even like the, um, or I was going to say, even the astrology still sort of reflect, or store, still includes how um, the importance of the big, of all the planets, especially the outer ones and not just like the sun and moon. Um, and then Emmanuel speaks about how uh, it is the abnormal and shocking events that create legends, not the general and mundane activities that people take for granted. So it was the comets that passed Earth in ancient times that became the stuff of legend. Um, and one reason is because of how terrifying they looked. I mean, if one of them looked like a serpent, I'm sure that would be pretty scary or if one of them looked like a wolf's head like you know coming to earth like that we you know that would be something to talk about <laughs> um and then Emmanuel talks about the pre-existing ideas or the idea or this notion of the pre-existing ideas in the souls of people um because the similarity of the folklore among people across continents poses a problem for ethnographers and anthropologists uh, and one suggestion offered is that people are born with these ideas but Emmanuel thinks that these ideas are more so reflect a great historical uh, con or great historical contents uh, and people aren't just born with them uh, he uses the folklore of a witch flying on a broomstick which both indigenous cultures and European cultures shared, like even before they, we had contact with each other. Um, and it could have been that they saw a comet flying across the night sky and it resembled a woman flying on a broomstick. So these traditions and the folklore of ancient people, um, you know, they have, um, they often come from historical content and not necessarily you know pre or innate in people or it's not necessarily that people are born with it but you know I, I wonder if maybe it's a bit of both like you know maybe with this big historical content that we all share there is like a in sort of like a a spiritual memory or an ether memory or something where we remember that these things happened and so they kind of become part of um, like our collective memory in a way. So maybe it's a bit of both. Like I, I don't, I won't totally discount the notion that we aren't, like we're not born with these ideas, like for the, you know, the folklore. Um, yeah, and maybe just after we or our ancestors experienced these cosmic upheavals maybe there's somewhere in that ancestral memory that these 
continue that these are like filed away somewhere and then people have an easier time remembering them through the generations I hope that if that makes sense um Uh, and then what was uh, and a really interesting uh, section was that, that about um, Mars is that he talked about how Earth's poles reversed. And I think I've mentioned this before. And sorry, if you hear noise in the background, like motorcycles and cars and stuff, I'm, I apologize. I just don't have a proper um, sound, like the proper sound proof area. So I... I'll try and minimize it as, as best I can. But anyway, so he talks about how um, the poles were kind of flipped uh, through throughout uh, history, and Emmanuel wonders if uh, reforms to the lunar cal calendar took place uh, shortly after minus 687 because the moon would have been uh, closer to Earth because of Mars's attraction. And... Um, so he wonders if the seasons, the orbital circumference, the length of the year, and the poles changed. And he uses the example of a sky chart found in, uh, he's, he's called Sen, Senmut tomb, who lived in Kemet. I think he was like a priest or something. And, uh, he had a sky chart showing two different epochs, one from the Middle Kingdom and one from his time. And the west and east had reversed. So um, modern astronomy doesn't consider that the east and west and north and south can be reversed, but the poles can be changed. And the sky charts in Sinmut's um, tomb was an example of that because it shows the sun rising and setting in two different uh, points. And then also at one point... Um, the Great Bear constellation was, Earth, uh, was Earth's uh, polar polar constellation. Like the north, north, the North Star was in there, and then after a catastrophe, the polar constellation changed to the Little Bear, which suggests that Earth's axis had tilted. Um, and then the Hindu, and then there was also a Hindu source that Emmanuel references, which uh, says that Earth receded from its spot by 500 to 900 miles so you know the both the poles and the the axis can become uprooted and in an earlier section he uses the example of how like sometimes lava like scientists will find lava and its mag magnetic direction would be different from the modern magnetic direction of the north and south poles so that's another example of how the poles may have been reversed because maybe at one point, um, you know, the the, pole, the magnetic poles were different, and the the lava, the lava with reversed reversed polarity would be an example of that. Um, and then he also talks about uh, temples and obelisks. So in ancient times, people built their temples orientated to the rising sun and visible planets. Um, there have also been temples found where the orientation to the direction of the rising and setting sun 
was changed from its original orientation. Like they found that the the foundation of the temple, like the the original foundation and its orientation to the sun, uh, they found that that had been changed. Like it had been like a new foundation was put on top of the old one, and that would reflect a new orientation to the sun, which would normally happen after a world catastrophe. Um, so the, so, and then the temples of more present times have their orientation, um, or sorry, the temples from the past had their orientation in a different direction other than east. So right now our sun rises in the east and sets in the west, but back then, they had different orientations, like it didn't always rise in the east. Sometimes there was a time in history where it rose in the west, and then those that orientation was changed after a catastrophe. So when the temples were destroyed in the upheavals, um, they would often be rebuilt uh, facing where their, orient, their important orientations were facing a new direction. And these orientations often coincided with like the equinoxes and the solstices so that people, ancient people back then could kind of take, uh, keep, tr keep track of time. So they would orientate the, the temples in a certain way so that they could record it or record this as well as record uh, the motion of the planets in the sky. Um, and then when the poles changed, um, the re regions previously in the polar region began to melt. And so what that means is that uh, countries that were once, or area, or land masses, I should say, that were previously in the polar region, so that was like the cold regions, uh, the ice would then begin to melt. And then those regions that, or those areas, sorry, land masses that weren't in the polar regions but got moved there, uh, they would begin to freeze. And this could be what preserved the mammoths uh, during all this time. It's, it's not what would have, it's not what killed them off right away. Uh, Emmanuel thinks that what killed them was either electrocution or asphyxiation. But the freezing and the ice is what preserved them because when researchers found the mammoths, they were comp they were um, like perfectly preserved. Like they still found uh, vegetation in the mammoths' stomachs, and I think a dog ate one or bit into one or something and didn't get sick. So uh, the creatures were perfectly preserved in the ice, but something else killed them. Uh, and so, you know, he says that, Emmanuel says that there would have to be uh, further investigations to find out what killed off the mammoths and when they got killed off. Because they could have, you know, maybe it was during the events of the Exodus or the 8th uh, century that saw these animals killed. Um, he's not sure when. So the, the cold climate in uh, Siberia started when the glacier glacial period for northeastern America and Europe ended. And that's when the poles, polar regions changed. And then a part of the uh, western or 
part of Western Alaska suddenly entered into the polar region. And what was interesting is that um, an ancient city found, or they, or um, what do you call them? The anthropologists, I think it was the anthropologists and some other scientists found uh, an ancient city with about 800 houses in the 1930s and 1940s, and it was preserved, like it was frozen <clears throat> and preserved in the ice in western Alaska. And this city was bigger than Fairbanks. And, what, and what's cool is that the artwork uh, found in the ancient city suggests that the people came from Asia. Uh, so that, that, you know, it's just, it really puts things into perspective, just how fast things change. Like the whole city was completely frozen over. And I'm not sure if people were able to get out of the city in time. And, and but before that, it must have been, Maybe it was a, a lot, the climate would have been a lot more mild and, you know, more hospitable to people. So it's, you know, it's amazing how these things change. Uh, so, and then one of my favorite sections in the last part of the book is about how um, a lot of ancient uh, cultures in the past, like the... Uh, the Vedas and uh, ancient Kemet and the Babylonians, uh, Chinese, the Mayans, Incas, they each observed a 360-day year before, like between the 15th and 8th uh, century, the year they, they observed a 360-day year. And so there would have been 12 months and those 12 months, or each month, would have been 30 days long. And, um, you know, and then the, the zodiacs and everything would follow that. They followed that, um, that calendar that, because it was, it was quite accurate back then. And uh, so that's where, that's why a lot of people used it. And usually the start, the new moon would indicate, or a new moon would indicate when the new uh, month would start. And so they used that for quite a while. And then after the upheavals in the 8th uh, century, like once everything kind of settled down, a lot of those same cultures added five days to their calendar. So that, And now we follow the 365-day uh, calendar, and then... Even the, the length of the month uh, changed. It went from 30 days to 29 and a half days. Um, but I thought that was pretty cool. And even, like, it's funny, those five days that the a lot of those cultures added on were considered unlucky. Like, people didn't do anything on those five days. It's kind of, yeah, they just didn't do anything. <laughs> they didn't like them, and they thought that they were unlucky and I, I get the reason why because those five days were associated with the with those upheavals but they had to add them because you know earth had changed after that and so in order to keep the proper time and calendars and so on they had to add those five days in <clears throat> and then between the days of Uzia and the days of Hekia, which, uh, or Hezekiah, sorry, Hezekiah, 
um, which was when Mars was uh, kind of coming into contact with the Earth because it happened over an interval of 15 years for that period of time. So <clears throat> in between those that 15 years, because the moon was also in close proximity to Earth and Mars, the moon also got kind of got thrown out of whack. And so for a little bit of time, the month, uh, the days in the month were extended from 30 days to either 35 or 36. And what's cool is that for a period of time, uh, Rome, I think Babylon as well, and a few other um, countries, they... <clears throat> observed a 10-month year. So uh, they had, it was mostly Rome that during, or the founding of Rome, when there was a 10-month um, year, like it, during the year of, uh, I think Rom Romulus created it because he's credited with the founding of Mars. And uh, so the first uh, month in the 10-year calendar was Mars, of course, and then it was followed by Venus. And then um, September, October, November, and December, they were the 7th, 8th, and 7, 8, 9, and 10th month, respectively. And that makes sense because December, like the Deca, that's usually associated with 10. Um, and then it was after the upheavals that January and February were added, and so we went back to a 12-month year. But I thought that was pretty cool. And even like, I think it's pretty interesting how September, October, November, and December, it's like a remnant of that 10-month time in history, which is pretty cool. Uh, and then, of course, the calendars were reformed. So during the, even like between the 15th and 8th uh, century, the calendar was pretty stable. Like it, after the Exodus happened and the Book of Joshua like the new calendar stayed fairly consistent. And then after the events of, or after seven minus six eighty seven, the calendar, that calendar was obsolete and a new calendar had to be drawn up. And um, Emmanuel used the uh, example of the Navia tablets. I hope I said that right, but they're, I think they're the Babylonian tablets and they, what they were is like a record of calendars, almost. And, you know, for a while, scholars thought that the Babylonians had made a bunch of errors because they were all different from each other. But Emmanuel thinks that they didn't make errors, that what happened is that the calendars just changed over a period of time because of all these cosmic upheavals going on, which would have changed um, the seasons, it would have changed the direction of the sun and so on so they had to like the ancients had to continually make up these new calendars and then after the 8th century then we had a period of stability up until now so the calendar has stayed relatively the same we haven't had to draw drop or haven't had to create a new calendar in a very long time um and then the latter part of the book was pretty I'd say that's probably the last few chapters of the book was probably some of my favorite because he kind of relates it to, it's like he ties it all in with the beginning of the book when he was talking about like, um, 
you know, the origins or some of the theories about the origins of space and stuff. So, um, he, in this last half of the book, he talks about like the moon, Mars and Venus, but more specifically like their, their atmospheres and their thermal balances and stuff like that. And I'll get to that in a second, but I thought that was really neat. Um, so ancient people, they would often look up at the sky and wonder if the moon had human settlements on it. And um, modern people would wonder where all the crater craters came from. Pardon me. So a couple of theories as to the origin of the craters, like some of them could be extinct volcanoes. And then another one is that um, they were formed by a bunch of meteorites hitting the surface when the moon was still somewhat liquid. Uh, and then after which the surface uh, solidified. So Emmanuel also thought that the moons experienced great catastrophes um, because there's over 30,000 craters on the surface. So he thinks that there must have been tremendous internal pressure and media meteors hitting the moon from all different directions, which would make sense because the moon did go through the exodus and all the stuff going on with Mars during the 8th century. So I'm sure, you know, the moon has seen some pretty, it's had some bad days. It's been through some shit. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, you know, the craters and everything, just like battle scars. Um, and then in Homer's Iliad, um, part of the story involving, the part of the story involving Aphrodite, uh, showed Zeus telling her to stay away from Ares and to leave the fighting to Hera and Athena. Which is kind of interesting in that, you know, in Greek mythology, Aphrodite, you know, she's like the goddess of love, and then she's often associated with Ares, like having a kind of like an illicit love affair. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe there's some truth to that. I guess, you know, maybe the moon and Ares got entangled in the in the cosmos and then you know she got hit by a bunch of meteorites and stuff like that from that experience so you know that I thought that was pretty cool and then Emmanuel just concludes that or the section about the moon by saying that he thinks it's just a great unmarked cemetery up there and it shows what uh, devastations can befall a planet and then the planet Mars. Um, so he does talk about how Mars has some similarities between um, with Earth. And exa the example is the length of days. So Earth, you know, typically we have a 24-hour day. And Mars is pretty close to that too. It's I think it's like 23, uh, or it's between 23 and 24 hours a day. And I mean, there are some simil other similarities with the with both planets. And then he also brought up the canals on Mars because some astronomers think that intelligent life created those canals. And you know, Emmanuel wasn't sure about that, but he does say that if there was intelligent Mar or intel intelligent life on Mars, that it could have been wiped out from all those cosmic upheavals. And I tend to, I mean, I don't know if there's anything on there or any intelligent beings on Mars. There could be. Maybe we can't see them with our instruments just yet, but um, with all those cosmic upheavals, I don't, 
I don't know if there was something up there then maybe it's not there anymore uh but we haven't it's hard to say and then uh, mars's atmosphere is also invisible so if there was any intelligent life on mars they wouldn't see a blue sky like us um and then observers at mount wilson's observatory have stated that mars have has a low absolute content of water which relates to the question of whether Mars has water vapor in its atmosphere. And Mars also has a very low amount of oxygen. Like, it's even lower than Earth, uh, being less than 0.1% of Earth, Earth's oxygen. So, um, and then when Mars, Earth, and Venus came into close contact with each other uh, during those upheavals, they did exchange a little bit of their atmospheres with each other, uh, so Earth receives some of Venus's hydrocarbons, and you know he kind of talked about that in Venus's uh, section where you know it rained hydro hydrocarbons from the sky, and then uh, when Earth could have received some of the argon and neon gases from Mars, and Emmanuel wonders if Mars is made if Mars's atmosphere is made up either. Like, or if there's a percentage of these uh, rare gases in Mars's atmosphere, but and I thought that section was pretty interesting. And then uh, Mars also, what's really cool is that Mars also gives off its own heat. Like it, it emits it emits more heat than it receives from the sun. And um, Emmanuel wonders if this is because of all the energy that was converted from motion to heat and maybe that energy is still there so Mars is still hot um, and then if there is electrical discharges during during those cosmic upheavals then that would create atomic fission and that which would create radiation heat and maybe that's what maybe that's the heat that's still emitting off of Mars uh, he also talks about Venus's atmosphere and their gases. Um, so from measurements of Venus's atmosphere through the spectroscopic analysis, it is most mostly composed of dust and carbon dioxide, and there's no uh, known oxygen or water vapor on Venus. Uh, Venus also has a really uh, powerful reflecting power. It's greater than any other planet. And Emmanuel thinks that, based on his research, Venus's atmosphere is composed of hydrocarbons or petroleum. And we received, like I said before, we received some of those hydrocarbons when Earth crossed into Venus's tail. And then Emmanuel also thinks, you know, he makes an indirect conclusion that Jupiter's atmosphere may contain petroleum or hydrocarbons, especially uh, methane. You know, and he kind of talks about that, you know, given that Venus could have been a comet ejected by uh, Jupiter at some point in the past. Uh, and then the source of the petroleum, you know, because there's the theory that petroleum comes from organic matter, uh, Emmanuel wonders if there's a vermin on both Venus and Jupiter, and that these vermin are the source of the... Um, of the petroleum or the hydrogen or the hydrocarbons because they would they would be the ones like their dead bodies would make up the organic matter 
And then the same thing, similar to Mars, Venus also emits its own heat. And what's interesting is that Venus has a uniform temperature for both the day and night hemispheres. And so this heat could have also could also be from the conversion of energy or the conversion of heat uh, from motion during the upheavals, uh, which would create a lot of heat, like which would make its core still hot. And then if there's still gas or sorry, not gas, oxygen on Venus, then if it's um, interacting with the hydrocarbons, then it would create petroleum fires on Venus, which would also contribute to it being a very hot planet. And what I thought was interesting, um, so the last part of the book, the conclusion is that, you know, Emmanuel, you know, he thinks that it is possible that we are going to have a major catastrophe again. And this time it could be more fatal um, because there's a chance that Pluto and Neptune could collide in the future or Pluto and Triton. And Triton is Neptune's uh, moon. They could collide in the future. Uh, another possible uh, source of upheavals is um, Jupiter's moons. They, they're they not on a stable ecliptic with each other, so they could collide and set off other coll collisions in the solar system. And also an asteroid could pass the path of Earth or Mars and collide, you know, causing a... And I, I guess it already happened with the dinosaurs. So it's not uncommon for or it's not unheard of for these things to happen in the universe. And so, you know, a lot of people are mistaken in thinking that the world has undergone millions of eons of undisturbed evolution. <laughs> we have not, <laughs> and will continue to go uh, do so for another million of, or more for another million years or so. Uh, the average person is not afraid of world ending events anymore and we cling to our possessions land holdings and fight over expanding territory uh, forgetting that cosmic upheavals can have caused the end of kingdoms in a matter of minutes um, and that you know the ex what happened during the exodus is a perfect example of that it completely ended the middle kingdom in Egypt and then um, and then cosmic collisions are just a part of the universe and are a natural phenomenon and that humanity's time on Earth could come to an abrupt end. And I just wanted to read, there was one little passage. It was a quote on the, for the very last, um, for the end. Uh, I just wanted to share it because I thought it was kind of, um, it's something that, it's a view that I, I agree with and you know, I'll try and live by moving forward after having re read this book. And the quote is something like this. So, uh, this world will be destroyed. Also, the mighty ocean will dry up and this broad earth will be burnt up. Therefore, sirs, cultivate friendly friendliness, cultivate compassion. And that's from the world cycles in the Vesudi Mega. I hope I said that right. And yeah, you know, given, you know, just the end of the book and 
you know, the possibility of another catastrophe happening. I think cultivating compassion as well as cultivating a connection with spirit or the connection with the creator or, or God, if you will, you know, having that connection, it, it kind of transcends the material, you know, because it's not a matter of if, but when another catastrophe happens, then, you know, the material stuff isn't going to matter. You know, it won't matter if we have like big land holdings or mansions or nice cars or anything like that. If the, you know, if, if Neptune and Pluto collide <laughs> or if a comet hits us again or sends us into massive earthquakes. But the one upheaval I'm concerned about more so is, you know, a man-made one. <clears throat> you know, all this technology that they're coming up with, you know, synthetic life and messing around with um, making chimeras and messing around with bacteria and putting, you know, there's that story where they put... Um, I think it was wheat genes into chestnut trees. You know, doing all these things and pretending that we can, we're the masters of the universe. Like, I think there's a danger there that we could end up creating our own upheaval. You know, bad enough, you know, let alone the universe. You know, if the universe has, um, if there's an upheaval caused by the planets or something, there's not much we can do about that. And it is part of the universal cycle. Just given that, you know, maybe the planets have their own death, just have, like, like we have our own lives to live, and our own deaths, that maybe the planets have their deaths. And maybe colliding with another planet or getting hit by a comet is, like, the equivalent to getting hit by a car for us. And, you know, planets may have their own natural life cycles, and they have their birth and their their life and maturation and then eventually they die and so eventually earth mars they'll all eventually they'll have their own death as well and even the the asteroid belt is theorized to have been a planet at one point that collided with maybe it was a meteor or another comet and now it's all shattered to pieces so I mean, I'm not trying to be bleak or anything like that, but more so that just maybe in terms, maybe rather than just material, maybe cultivating compassion and kind of the spiritual within ourselves, like, can provide far more meaning than just trying to cling to possessions, which they can be taken away in a heartbeat in any way. Rather, if, if, you know, it could be a, I mean, I've seen with, like, some of the, you know, the so-called fires in latent B.C. or California, like, you know, people losing their homes and everything in the flash. It all changes in a blink of an eye. It's so fast. And so maybe it's just having the gratitude and compassion and cultivating that compassion for one another because we won't be here forever. Um you know, and, and I know that's not always easy, and I get pissed off with people too, and it pissed off with myself, but, um, you know, just kind of keeping that in the back of the mind, my mind, like, before I get quick to anger, maybe it's, 
or an, quick to annoyance. Maybe it's just taking a step back and remembering that, like, this is all temporary and just to, maybe the point is more of a spiritual, compassionate um, way of being rather than just a material one. Um, so with that being said, I appreciate everyone stopping by. I'm going to start another book next week, a new one called Emergence. Um, and I kind of, I saw it in a used bookstore and it reminded me of the book I read, uh, the the one before Worlds in Collision. I, I read The World Sensorium by Oliver L. Riser and he often used the word emergence because, you know, he's all about the creating this collective world brain. And so I saw the book and I was just like, oh, wow, that looks kind of interesting. Maybe... Maybe I should read it. So I'm going to read that one because over the course of in the next little while, I'm going to be talking more about like the token economics and uh, like the spatial web and Web3 and and learning more about that myself because I know I, I've often mentioned it and I've mentioned Allison McDowell's work too. Um, and she's a really cool researcher and she's done a lot of work on um, researching and putting together the pieces about what's going on in terms of like the rollout of Web3 and, you know, uh, human capital finance and like the, you know, this push towards synthetic life. And, um, you know, I feel like I should start doing some more uh, study and understanding these subjects as well, so I feel like I can have a more in-depth conversation about them on my podcast, because I feel like I need that. So I, I'm going to be reading these books and sharing what I learn on my podcast for the next little while, and after that, I'll, I'll once I've kind of learned more about that area, then I'm going to go back to like learning more about... Um, I want to explore some of Carl Jung's work because archetypes are also something that the powers that shouldn't be are trying to use for the, their own selfish purposes. Um, so learning more about archetypes, learning more about Carl Jung and some of the other uh, stuff I'm interested in reading. But before that, I do really want to explore these really important topics like, like token economics and share that with uh, you guys through these podcasts. So that's what I'm going to be focusing on for the next little while. And thank you for stopping by the cafe. And I hope you all have a lovely day and week and weekend and talk to you all soon. Bye-bye.